This evening we're going to consider the beginning of human life. The beginning of human life, we're looking, we're, we're dropping in um, on chapter 2 of Genesis, verse 4 to the end of the chapter. You may recall that chapter 1 of the book of Genesis presents a very broad view of the six literal days of creation, with God resting from his creative handiwork on the seventh day. With regards to God making human beings, we saw in chapter 1, verses 26, 27, let's have a look at that again and remind ourselves, this is on the sixth, sixth day. And God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. And it's worth mentioning, I'm going to mention it again, but I'll mention now that all the other animals, sea creatures, birds of the air, you name it, all the animals, the other creatures, had already been made by God. And then finally God says, let us make man in our image. And he made them male and female. Okay, remember that. This evening, we'll move on to chapter 2, which goes into some details about how the first male and female were made. And it also looks at God's dealings with them. Relevant to that is the fact that we see the name Lord for the very first time in the Bible in chapter 2, verse 4. You won't see Lord uh, with the capital letters anywhere before chapter 2 and verse 4. Lord, capital letters meaning Jehovah. And that is the name given to God, or not given to God, that is the name that God is known by his people, Lord. It's the, he is the God of the covenant, covenant that he brings people like us into and we know him and address him as Lord. So, chapter 1, you see that God made this, God did that, and when it comes to the creative handiwork of God, we see his name, God. But now, we've come to the second chapter, and God's dealings with mankind, it's Lord God. It's not like that all the way through, but this I think it's interesting that from this time onwards, from chapter 2, verse 4, Lord God, in other words, Lord, which speaks of his covenantal relationship with people, and God, which speaks of his creative handiwork. So, if you're trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ as your saviour from sin, your day of rest each week is a time for you to worship God who made all things. You can remember God who in six days created all things and he rested from his creative activity on the seventh day. But also, having made you a new creature in Christ, you can remember God and as your Lord. He saved you from your sin, 
If you're a Christian, trusting in Jesus, he saved you and you can so you can think of God as God, the creator God, and you can also think of him as Lord, your Lord, your saviour from sin. The one who has delivered you from slavery to sin. I'm not saying you, you restrict this to one day in the week. I'd rather hope that you don't. But certainly that one day of rest each week is most certainly a time where the Bible encourages you to, to think upon those things. First of all this evening we can consider how the Lord God made the first man, Adam. Look at verse 7 again in chapter 2. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living soul. Having already been informed in chapter 1 that God created man on the sixth day, we now see that the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground. That word formed, it means shaped. As a potter shapes objects from clay, the Lord God shaped Adam from the dust of the ground. If you accept the Bible in its entirety as the, as the inerrant and infallible word of God, even the first part of verse 7 there, the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground. This is the first man, Adam. He formed him of the dust of the ground. What should that tell you loud and clear? It tells me that we most certainly did not evolve from apes or anything else and become human beings. God made man or formed man from the dust of the earth. And as I say, when you look at, when you cast your eye over to chapter one, you see that all the other creatures God had already made. And then we read God made or rather formed or, or shaped man from the dust of the ground. And there's no more to be said on that, I wouldn't have thought. The teaching that we as humans were formed from the dust of the earth did not escape a man called Elihu, who in Job chapter 33 verse 6 said, I also am formed out of the clay, thereby um, connecting himself with his first parent, Adam. And we could say the same about all of, we could all say the same thing there, that we are formed out of the dust of the clay. Uh, the, the, out of the clay. But obviously, if you're a Christian, you can say a lot more than that. You're formed out of the dust of the ground, but also you are a new creature in Christ. And praise God for that. Also there was Isaiah who said in Isaiah chapter 64 and verse 8 But now, O Lord, thou art our father, we are the clay, and thou our potter, and we all are the work of thy hand. Speaking of God as the potter here, and we as the clay. Therefore, when you look at the plain teaching of Genesis chapter 2 verse 7, and various other Bible references. It's one thing for those who will insist on rejecting the Bible. You've probably all met them. You know, they'll, they'll just stop you in your tracks, say, I don't believe the Bible. Don't believe it. 
a lot of fairy tales, whatever. It's one thing, I'm not saying it's right, but it's one thing for them to, to say that and to reject that man did not evolve. However, it's another thing altogether when professing Christians embrace what is termed as theistic evolution with God overseeing evolution as it continues to happen, as it unfolds. The Bible does not give us that option. I presume if it, is, if it was right, we'd still be evolving now. And it's anybody's guess what man is going to be in another billion years from now. But it's, it's, the Bible doesn't give us that option to, to get on board that lie. It has already been seen in chapter 1, verse 27, that God created man in his image. Being made in the image of God is something that is not said about any other creature. Now in chapter 2, verse 7, we see that the Lord God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living soul. And uh, this isn't some kind of artificial... Uh, artificial resuscitation or anything. God, we needn't think of God blowing air into the man's lungs to kickstart his lungs or something like that. Again, it's not said of any other creatures. By breathing into the nostrils of the man whom God had formed from the dust of the earth, God, who is life, and he is the source of life, made man a living soul in his image and in his likeness. And what does mankind now do? We, we see that God has made man in his image, he's breathed into his nostrils and breathed life into him, made him a living soul. So what do we do now, all these years later, in gratitude to God, who is life and who is the source of life? Well, for one thing, People are very good at, at uh, insisting that life started billions of years ago as a result of some kind of random explosion. Having eliminated God, men and women are then free to do whatever they want to and that includes how opposite can you get to God breathing in the nostrils of man and making him a living soul. How opposite to that can you get? How about the wholesale destruction of unborn lives? Here we go again. Glenn talking about abortion. I just happen to think it's such a, uh, such an indictment on man who's made in the image of God. And I can't think of any greater violation of God's law to love our neighbour as ourselves. And that's why I keep bringing it up time and time again. But the thing is, if we subscribe to evolution and we, we ignore these verses before us, God making man in his image, God um, forming man out of the dust of the ground and breathing into his nostrils and making him a living soul, forget all that stuff, if we ignore it, then... Why not? Why not destroy life? It's pretty cheap. It's pretty cheap once you've taken God out of the equation. And why not, why not replace what we see in the Bible with um, the, the, the lie that we have advanced from apes? 
that we're not made in the image of God. Well, this is what's happened, isn't it? And consequently, the appetite for killing babies is so great. We're talking about huge, this. It's massive. It's so great that only days ago, last week, a bill that would have given American women the legal right to have an abortion up to birth. Federal law, if it had been put on the federal law books, it would have given every woman in America the right to have an abortion up to birth. And this is, but it didn't happen. It was narrowly defeated by one vote, in fact. Just one vote. This is what a very disappointed President Biden said about the outcome of the vote. Listen to this. Quoting President Biden, his, uh, this is a release from the White House. Once again, as fundamental rights are at risk at the Supreme Court, Senate Republicans have blocked passage of the Women's Health Protection Act. A bill, a bill that affirmatively protects access to reproductive health care. He's calling it reproductive health care as if it's, um, having an abortion is, sorry to say this, but using a condom or something. The failure, this failure to act comes at a time when women's constitutional rights are under unprecedented attack and it runs counter to the will of the majority of American people. Republicans in Congress, not one of whom voted for this bill, well, praise God for them, have chosen to stand in the way of Americans' rights to make the most personal decisions about their own bodies, never mind the body inside the woman's body, forget that, personal decisions about their own bodies, families and lives. To protect the right to choose, voters need to elect more pro-choice senators this November. He's making it very, very political. And return a pro-choice majority to the House. If they do, Congress can pass this bill in January and put it on my desk so that I can sign it into law. That is the situation in the most powerful country in the world. The United States of America is a divided nation. And that is largely because half of the population wants baby killing up to birth under the banner of women's health protection. And there are others, not just a tiny minority, but plenty of others who do not want that and who see that... um, that life is very special, human life is very special. There are those who go to, to as far as to say that that once mighty empire is on the brink of civil war. I don't think that's an exaggeration and that is largely because of the division over the sanctity of life. Or some see it, women's Health protection. Before we move on, it's fair to say that since we don't come from gold dust, but from the dust of the ground, that ought to forbid pride. But you know as well as I do that it doesn't forbid pride. And even for Christians, we struggle with pride. Shouldn't do, but we do. 
In fact, one of the chief characteristics of fallen and sinful man is pride, boasting about our achievements. We have to sneak in a little bit of boasting when we're talking about what we've done, expand upon it somewhat. That is, until such time, God raises spiritually dead people and by his grace, he forgives them all their sins, including their pride. And this is something that, by the grace of God, if you're a Christian, you should be continually looking to God to, for, to give you the victory over the pride that we all still tend to suffer from at various times. The new birth is the work of God, the Holy Spirit, and it has been likened to being blown by the wind. Where am I getting that from? Blown on by the wind. The new birth and being blown on by the wind. That's the analogy there. It's John chapter 3. The Lord Jesus Christ talking to a Pharisee, Nicodemus. And this is what Jesus said in John chapter 3, verse 7 to 8. Marvel not that I say unto thee, ye must be born again. The wind bloweth where it listeth. And thou hearest the sound thereof, but cannot tell whence it cometh and whither it goeth. So is everyone that is born of the Spirit. The Lord God made a living soul when he breathed into his nostrils, according to Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. But the question that you need to answer is, has God the Holy Spirit blown on you and raised you up to everlasting life? Are you trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins? That's how you will know. Just as you know when the, you can't see the wind, but you certainly know, especially on this little island, you know when the wind's about, don't you? We all know it. Well, you know when God, the Holy Spirit, has blown on you because your whole outlook changes. And you, by the grace of God, the things that you once loved, you hate. Not immediately, but it's an ongoing process. And, and, and you have a heavenly outlook. And you love the Lord Jesus Christ, your saviour from sin. So, if the Holy Spirit has blown on you, you are someone who knows it because you are someone in whom the image of God was largely lost because of the fall. We haven't looked at that yet, and I'm skipping it tonight. Um, we'll come to it when we come to chapter 3 of Genesis. But because of the fall, Adam's disobedience, that image of God was, if not completely, largely destroyed. Nevertheless, as a Christian, having been blown on, blown upon by God the Holy Spirit and having trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ as a repentant sinner, you are someone who grows in the knowledge of your great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, who loved you and who gave himself for you. You never tire of learning more and more about Jesus, which should be easy for you to understand. If you love someone or something, or, or you want to know more and more about that person or that thing, how much more so, Jesus, you never get fed up 
learning more, growing in knowledge of Jesus Christ who gave himself for you at the cross. And more and more you hate wickedness and and you hunger and thirst after righteousness and your prayer is that you would be more holy. Again, it doesn't mean walking around with a halo above your head, but you want to be more holy in that you want to be more like Jesus. In the things that you love, the things that you hate. Let's move on, and we shall now consider man's relationship with work. I suspect that there's more than a few people who, you've read the early chapters of Genesis, And still you imagine that work only came into existence after the fall of Adam and Eve. After sin came into the world, bang, God cursed the ground. Again, we're going to come to that later uh, in chapter 3. But God cursed the ground and work came into existence. No work before then. You may well imagine that before the fall, Adam and Eve just spent their time resting in their hammocks or leisurely ambling around in the Garden of Eden as they plucked fruit from the trees and enjoyed eating them. Maybe that was all they did all day long. So you think. However, let's have a look at verse 15 and we'll see that that's not quite the case. Verse 15, And the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. To dress it and to keep it. Sounds like work, doesn't it, really? Work. So even before the fall, man had to work for his food. That's always been the case. Consequently, in the New Testament, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse 10, the Apostle Paul speaking as he was led by the Holy Spirit said, For even when we were with you, this we commanded you, that if any would not work, neither should he eat. If a man shall not work, he shall not eat. That is a biblical principle from the very beginning. We can see that to be the case. But in this world that uh, does its level best to turn everything upside down, we now live in a nanny state where, you know, if you can't work, if you genuinely can't work, fair enough, but... um, there are, there are people, and we all know it, who, if they don't work, well, they'll be looked after by the state. But that is not biblical. Not biblical at all. That basic principle of working for your food applies not just to mankind, but to other creatures as well. For example, it's been said that God gives every bird his worm, but he does not throw it into the nest. It's quite good, isn't it? If by the grace of God you've been saved from your sins through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, then you have a work to do in the service of God. Very special work to do in the service of God, a work that God has prepared for you. And having said that, whatever work you do ought to be done with thanksgiving in your heart and a love for your Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. According to Genesis chapter 29 and verse 20, Jacob, Jacob the grandson of Abraham, he served seven years for Rachel and they seemed unto him but a few days for the love 
he had for her. Dear Christian, surely your motivation for doing the work that you do ought to be the love that you have for Jesus. A love that comes from the Lord God who has loved you before you loved him and has loved you with an everlasting love. Last of all, we can consider God's provision of a suitable helper for the man. Look at verse 18. And the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him and help meet for him. Man was never meant to be a solitary creature. Sometimes, confession time, sometimes I feel like I want to be very solitary. But we're not meant to be solitary creatures. Consequently, the Lord God said, I will make a help meet for him. What comes next is what appears to be a contradiction which has been seized upon by Bible sceptics. So, let's have a look at that again. See if you can keep up with me here. Verse 18. The Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him and help meet for him. And then look at verse 19. And out of the ground... The Lord God formed every beast of the field and every fowl of the air and brought them unto Adam to see what he would call them. And whatever, whatsoever Adam called every living creature, that was the name thereof. Sounds like Adam was all alone, doesn't it? And so God then formed the animals to make a help meet for him. But hang on a minute. Didn't I tell you earlier that um, in chapter 1, God made the... Birds of the air, the beasts of the field, the fish in the sea and all the rest of them. And then last of all, he made man in his image and he made them male and female. So, do we have a contradiction here? Do we have a contradiction? It appears that the animals were created after the man when you look at verses 18 and 19 of chapter 2. However, that apparent contradiction disappears when you understand that where we read the Lord God formed every beast of the field, the Lord God formed every beast of the field in verse 19 there, it could just have easily been translated the Lord God had formed every beast of the field. That word had could legitimately be put there. As was done in verse 8, look at verse 8. The Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden and there he put the man whom he had formed. You could have the same thing very legitimately in verse 19. Whether it's formed or had formed, it makes no difference when you look at the original language. I'm not normally one to promote the NIV, but interestingly it translates verse 19 as... Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds of the sky, thereby showing that the animals that were brought to Adam had already been created. Okay? Quite an interesting point, isn't it? I think it is. Okay, let's... um, We're going to come across another apparent contradiction here, but trust you know that the Bible does not have contradictions. We just have difficulty understanding it at times. 
Look at, well, I'm going to read verses 20 through to 25 again. And Adam gave names to all cattle and to the fowl of the air and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found an help meet for him. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh instead thereof. And the rib which the Lord God had taken from man made he a woman and brought her unto the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife and they shall be one flesh. And they were both naked and the man, the, the man and his wife and were not ashamed. So, all the land animals and the birds that had been made were brought to Adam. He named them and that gives rise to yet another objection. If we accept that God made all the creatures, all the other creatures, the land animals, the birds and everything else, the marine animals, if God made all of those creatures before he made Adam and Eve, and he made, when did he make Adam and Eve? On the sixth day. On the sixth day, the same day in other words. So, that if we are to accept that, the, the argument is that since according to chapter 1, both Adam and Eve were made in God's image on the sixth day, after the Lord God had already made the other creatures, the other creatures, it means that Adam, whom God formed out of the dust of the ground on the sixth day, would have had to give names to how many millions or billions of creatures very, very, very quickly and um, because Eve would be formed out of his side on the same day that Adam was formed from the dust of the ground. Not possible. How could that ever be possible? I hope you're with me with that. However, it's worth noting that marine animals and the creepy crawlies aren't mentioned in the naming ceremony. Let's see now. Yeah, that's it. Marine animals, creepy crawlies, they're not mentioned at all. It's the land animals and the fowls of the air, the birds that are mentioned there, brought to Adam to be named. Neither are invertebrates mentioned the creatures that are mentioned make up about 2% of all known creatures. 2%, that's all. That's the first thing to appreciate. The animals that were brought before Adam, 2% of all the creatures, known creatures. Furthermore, as can be seen in chapter 1, God made creatures after his kind or according to its kind and not according to its species which is a species is a man-made classification and it's very different to kind. Don't confuse the two. Very simply, if two animals are able to mate and to reproduce, they are the same kind. You do get man interfering with their things, and as man always does, you know, mating two animals. I don't know whether they do it um, in a lab or what. And two... Animals 
reproduce, uh, uh, produce an offspring, but then the offspring cannot reproduce. If animals are of the same kind, they can naturally reproduce, mate and reproduce. That is what a kind is. That means that there are much fewer kinds of animals than there are species of animals, much fewer. And it has been estimated that there would have been only, uh, this is an estimate, but um, I've got this information from answers in Genesis. I'm not saying they are the final authority, but that's just to let you know the source that I referred to. It's been estimated that there would have been only 2,500 kinds, kinds of creatures for Adam to name, which would have taken him less than four hours to do so. Not a huge job. So there you have it. And that's worth remembering as well when people try to get you on the, the, the animals entering the ark two by two. All the animals, again, they're entering after their kind. Uh, the, the land animals, that is, were entering the ark to, two by two. Although many species, many species have sprung from the same kind of animal over the years, there are not as many different kinds of land animals as one might imagine. Anyway, none of the animals that were brought before Adam were suitable, and so the Lord God made a woman from one of Adam's ribs. The fact that Eve was formed from one of Adam's ribs, a fact, an emphasis on the fact there, that does not imply inferiority of women. I like what the Bible commentator Matthew Henry said. He said that woman was taken out of man's side to suggest her equality with him, not out of his feet to imply inferiority, not out of his head to suggest superiority, but out of his side implying companionship and equality. Sounds pretty good to me. In fact, where we read help meet in verse 20, that actually means helper as a counterpart. In other words, a woman's relation to a man is one of being his counterpart or his complement. Someone to compliment, not pay him compliments, to to be his complement, to be with him. And whenever that is realised in marriage, God's purpose is being fulfilled. And we see that to be the case with the Lord God's design for marriage between a biological man and a biological woman, resulting in the husband and wife cleaving together as one flesh. As we finish, I want to turn your attention back to verse 7 and draw a big, big line from the sixth day of creation to something that the Apostle Paul said about AD 60. First of all, let's have a look at verse 7 again. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living soul. Right, we can. I think we can leave Genesis now. You don't have to keep your finger in there. Leave Genesis and turn to Romans chapter 9. Going through the pages of history now to 
the epistle to the Romans. And we'll have a look at verses 21 through to 24 in chapter 9. Where Paul, the apostle, says, Hath not the potter, well we know who the potter is, don't we? God, the Lord God. Have not the potter power over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel unto honour and another unto dishonour? What if God, willing to show his wrath, and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy which he had afore prepared unto glory, even us whom he hath called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. In those verses in Romans, the Apostle Paul refers to God as a potter and mankind is what? One big lump of clay throughout history. You think of mankind right from Adam and Eve onwards as one big lump of clay which sounds very similar to chapter 2 verse 7 of Genesis. Paul was answering an objection that God only chooses some people for salvation and everlasting life. They are the vessels of mercy, whilst leaving the others, whom Paul describes as vessels of wrath fitted to destruction, to perish in their sins. So God leaves some to perish in their sins, whilst saving others, the vessels of mercy. Given the reality that there are some, indeed many, indeed probably most of the world, who are the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction, God endures them with great patience for the time being as they heap judgment upon themselves through their willful rebellion against him. Even now the wrath of God abides on all who reject the Lord Jesus Christ and his gospel and who deny God, even though the power of God can be clearly seen in what he has created. However, when the Lord Jesus Christ comes again in judgment and the long-suffering of God gives way to his wrath and to his power, those two attributes, his wrath and his power, will be multiplied when Jesus comes. And they will be clearly seen when Jesus says to the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction, Depart from me, ye cursed, into the everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. As for the vessels of mercy, God will make known the riches of his glory on them when Jesus will say to them in the presence of everyone who has ever lived, Come ye blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world, and they shall go away into life eternal. Very different, isn't it, for the vessels of mercy. Do you know the righteous judge, the Lord Jesus Christ, as your saviour from sin? Praise God now and forevermore if you are trusting in Jesus as a repentant sinner because you are the recipient of God's mercy and his compassion. You are a vessel of honour fitted unto everlasting life through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And since Jesus has already suffered the shame of the cross, as your sin bearer, you will never be put to shame. Amen.